The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, Peter Canova, is author of Pope Annalisa, a novel encompassing a troubled world full of complex plots, murders, and power struggles. He joins me today to talk to the underlying spiritual messages that transform the common notions of religion, reality, and morality cited in the book. My guest today is author of Pope Annalisa, written following a career that took him around the world, during which he met diverse and inspirational spiritual figures. His subsequent conclusions that spirit transcends religious beliefs led to the writing of this book, where he elevates those experiences toward the exploration of ancient spiritual traditions that drive through the main Abrahamic religions. The novel tells of a troubled world full of complex plots, murders and power struggles, and he joins me today to talk to the underlying spiritual messages that transform the common notions of religion, reality and personal morality. Peter Canova, welcome to you. Hello, David. Great to be with you today. Absolute pleasure, Peter. My goodness me, um, after our uh, short conversation before the program, uh, I, I send my sympathies for your long journey across the country. <laughs> well, that's uh, one of many journeys I've been on. I'm sure I'll survive this one, too. Peter, I would like to start the program for our listeners with just a, a short summary, a couple of minutes, if I may ask you, to give me just a brief background of where you've been currently and what is the purpose of your book. Right. Well, the book is the culmination of another journey, as we spoke of, which is a spiritual journey that I've been on, and I felt that that had some value to people other than myself, which was probably my primary reason for writing the book. I, uh, I've had in my life some direct experiences with, I guess we can call it higher consciousness, higher intelligence, God. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to the listeners to decide what's comfortable for them. But uh, certainly it's, it's a higher guiding intelligence that provides us uh, information and uh, I think for the betterment of our lives. And this is something that's very distinct from what most of us are raised on, which is the concept of faith. Faith is something that you you accept provisionally, I guess, from other parties, whether it be a church, a government, what scientists tell us about the world and reality. We, we sort of take that secondhand in effect. But the direct experience with the intelligence that I'm talking about is really an enlightening encounter. It's a, it's a direct experience, which you now absorb as part of your knowledge base. You go from faith to knowledge because it's actually happened to you. So it's not something that you have to uh, believe in uh, on uh, second hand, but uh, it's something that uh, you, you directly experience uh, in your inner being. And uh, I don't believe that I'm an exception. I believe that many other people have had such experiences. I believe that everybody can have them uh, if they have the desire in their hearts and they're willing to, to 
seek and uh, follow a you know follow a path, and that path can take many forms. And I guess that's my message that we can all arrive at these experiences, although our paths may be different. And the book is just a way of describing uh, through the lives of the characters. Uh, some possibilities of how that can happen. Well, before we talk about Pope Annalisa, if I may, for our listeners, I'd just like to gain some visibility of your background in earlier years that will build up a picture for them. What was your childhood about, Peter? Where did you originally come from? What were the values that you grew up with? Right. Well, I'm I'm a native of the uh, Boston area, Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, Actually, I, I came from, I, I, I guess you would say, a relatively privileged background. Uh, my father was a, a well-noted uh, businessman back in the uh, 60s and 70s. In fact, he was on many TV shows and was the subject of uh, several books of um, uh, people who made it after World War II, in the post-World War II era. And uh, I would say that I came from a fairly privileged background, and yet I was always uncomfortable. I always felt a certain sense of alienation. I always felt that I was a little bit like the outsider looking in. Now, that's probably not uncommon. A lot of people, I think, you know, have these feelings of alienation, especially when you're, let's say, in your teen years. I, I think that's pretty common. Maybe the difference with me is that I obsessed over them and decided to explore a little bit further uh, about, you know, why, why I, uh, you know, why I kind of felt like a stranger in a strange land. Anyway, that probably led me to notice uh, an advertisement in um, the newspaper in the 1970s. There was an organization that went by the name of Silva Mine Control. Now, that, that sounds rather ominous, but this was actually a terrific organization back then, and it was one of the early groups that were uh, was training people to cultivate their uh, intuition, what was called ESP back then and uh, to use that for practical benefits. And that was very appealing to me as a Capricorn. I, although I do write about spiritual matters, I, I don't really have a lot of use for a lot of what goes under New Age, um, uh, you know, new, new Age things out there. It, 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 it smacks a little bit of being a, a little bit out there and, and, and not really uh, being uh, applicable to our lives except as an intellectual exercise. So I, I'm really more... Uh, concerned about practical applications of, of, uh, of spirit and spiritual growth. And I attended this course, and uh, to make a long story short, on the final day we did intuitive medical readings where one person would have a, an index card and it would contain information about somebody who was uh, ill, either physically or mentally ill, and all they were allowed to do was to tell you the name, age, and address of the person, and the person doing the reading would then have to fill in what information they were seeing. Well, I found that I... I seem to have a real clarity for doing this, and I remember the very first case I did uh, was a, a gentleman, and all they did was give me the name, age, and location of him, and I saw that he had a heart problem. The heart was tilted at a funny angle, which led me to believe that his aorta was pinched off, and I said, well, I believe he has a blockage in his aorta, and they said, that's correct, and then I saw something metallic down the bottom quadrant of the heart, and I said, it looks like he has something like a pacemaker or something mechanical in the heart, and they said, that's correct, he has a pacemaker, and then they asked, what year was the pacemaker installed? So I saw the hands of a clock spinning around and it stopped dead at 10 o'clock, which indicated, in my mind, 10 years prior, and it was 1975, so I said, I believe the pacemaker was installed in 1965, and again, that was correct. So that was the first uh, indication to me that um, something was going on here, and it was uh, almost like learning how to ride a bicycle. The more you did this, the more proficient you got at it, uh, to the point where I used to have, I, w- I was a student in those days in a working-class neighborhood in Boston. I used to have people lined up outside my door for uh, uh, medical readings. But the more important thing uh, to me, David, was 
that it, it indicated to me for the first time that we are all connected at an unseen level, that there must be a higher intelligence that binds all of us together, because otherwise, how would I know this information about other people? Uh, the, 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 no matter how you explain it away, there was some communication at some unseen energetic level that was occurring between myself and, and the subjects, uh, and it was through the medium of, of, of something that was probably bigger than both of us. I probably felt more comfortable at that point, and that night after I took that course, I probably slept better than any other time I had in my life because things started to make sense to me, and I started to really realize that we are really, there really is a unity there, and that there is a higher intelligence, and that we are somehow connected into it, and that we can uh, tap into this for the betterment of our lives, for practical information to help guide us. And I just basically took off from there, and that started, uh, I, I guess that gave me the greatest impetus for my later spiritual journeys. What happened after that period? What sort of education did you look at? Did you attend university with a specific issue or a specific subject in mind? Uh, well, yes, I, I was uh, at Brandeis University at the time, and I was uh, majoring in uh, sociology and political science. Uh, I then went on to law school for a short time at Boston College Law School, where I subsequently left to uh, get a job and work overseas. I didn't particularly like law school. I found the, the thinking there rather narrow and limiting, uh, which it probably is a good thing for lawyers, but not, not a good thing, I think, for uh, a broader perspective of your growth. And uh, I, I kind of jumped at an opportunity to work overseas, uh, which I did for, oh, about six or seven years. I, I worked in various countries around three or four continents. Uh, came back and went to business school at Babson College. Uh, nothing really, I would say, in my life might have indicated this latter-day career as an author here, other than the fact that I had these spiritual interests. And I did, I did have an interest in writing. I always had, I guess, an affinity for the for the English language and to communicate in 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 a persuasive way with people. That certainly was part of the work I had in the business world. Was that sort of communication and I. I Fortunately, had the ability to do that well in writing. So, eventually, these two streams of that that um, uh, the uh, the ability of writing and the, the the spiritual path kind of converged into the idea of the book. Were you writing at that time, or was it the writing that came later in life? It was the writing that I did at that time. Really, had nothing to do with the form of writing uh, that we see in the book here, uh, fictional writing, novel writing. It was really more pedestrian. It was for marketing purposes. I handled a lot of the marketing and, and PR for our companies, and uh, I would do a lot of uh, business writing and, and 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 writing again for marketing purposes. Uh, I think that the first indication that I had of any um, you know ability for 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 writing books or literature. Uh, was when I started attending some writers' conferences, oh, and this is going back, I'm, I'm going to think maybe about 12, 12, 13 years ago, I uh, went, I know I went to the Santa Barbara's Writers' Conference, which is one of the big writers' conferences in the country, and uh, I won, uh, the first thing I ever wrote was a short story, which I won a first prize for there, and that, that encouraged me because I had no idea if I had any ability to write in a way that would mean anything to anybody else. And that, that's one of the things as a first-time author that you run into. You really don't have any parameters. You sort of sit in a room and you write by yourself. You don't have anyone looking over your shoulder saying, this is good, this is that, people will understand this, they won't understand, cut this, leave that. Nobody's really telling you that. 
and you sort of have to piece things together in the dark, and then eventually, yes, it goes through an editing process, but of course, editors will tell you all kinds of conflicting information. In the, in the literary world, when you're an author seeking advice, you're sure. going to get plenty of advice, and, and most of it doesn't coincide with, uh, with, uh, with each other. It's, it's, it's a lot of conflicting information. So, for, to a great extent, you're sort of left in the dark, and it's only when you get out there and you actually put your work out uh, where, where it can be read in a broader forum that you start to get a sense that, okay, maybe I, I, I am writing something that uh, I can communicate to people. So that, that winning that uh, literary prize for the short story kind of spurred me on, and then I, I wrote another short story uh, for Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Zoetrope, which was a big online magazine uh, that was, uh, I think it may be still going, but they used to take in a lot of short stories about 500 a month, and a story that I wrote took first prize in December of 1999. Uh, it was about the Greek uh, Civil War. And so, again, that was an indication to me that, okay, you know, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm writing about things and writing in such a way that people can relate to, because ultimately, this writing, besides being a cathartic experience for the writer, getting something off our chest that we deeply want to say, it's also something that we must communicate to other people that we have a need to because you ostensibly have something that you think is of import to tell them. And you have to tell it to them in an interesting way because it's one thing to have a message, but if the medium is a bore, they're never going to get to the message. Well, I'm assuming then at the end of the 90s you're really beginning to learn about story structure. But before we take that and we look at spirituality and we look at Pope Annalisa, I, I, if I may, I would like to just take you back to those formative years and ask you your thoughts in retrospect about the religious establishment because we didn't really touch on that in that, that prior conversation. Right. I was raised um, variously in among different Christian denominations because my, my family was a little bit of a mixed bag of uh, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and Episcopalian. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of been to all the churches, and in fact, th they pretend they're different, but they're pretty much the same. At least those particular churches are. And um, I probably was, you know, raised pretty typically. I was an altar boy. I went to, you know, learn catechism. I went to Sunday school, um, did all that. Uh, and I, I found I found something rather mechanical about the whole thing, kind of perfunctory. I, I wasn't really getting the feeling. I, I was getting the, the theories, but I wasn't really catching, catching the feeling of it. And when I decided to write Pope Annalisa, by that time I had evolved spiritually to some point, but not evolved to the extent that I felt like trashing religion. Now, a lot of people do that. We, we see that a lot. Were you well read uh, with amazing people like Martin Luther or Calvin. Uh, did they come into your mind at, at that stage? Did you consider the principles? Did you consider maybe the after-effects of how they affected the Catholic Church? Was that something that you had considered back in those days? Yes, I, I, was, a, I was always, from the time I was a young boy, I was always a voracious reader. Uh, I remember my parents gave me the, uh, a gift of, when I was probably about... 10 years old of the World Book Encyclopedia, and I used to memorize whole sections of it. I, I, just, loved to, I just loved to read about things in general. And yes, I, I did do a lot of um, formal reading on uh, religious figures and uh, religious uh, issues, and had a pretty good familiarity for a, a lay person with that. And subsequently, much of my writing uh, turned to um, what, what is called in the Christian world 
pseudepigraphia, the uh, non-canonical texts that never made it into the Bible, and ultimately uh, found my way to some good translations of the Nag Hammadi Library, which are the Gnostic Gospels that were discovered in the deserts of Egypt in 1945, which have shed such a different light on the, on the whole foundation of Christianity and Judaism. Let me ask you this then, and we're going to move forward and keep those subjects in mind. You become a businessman. And this is the part that's of interest and that acts as a segue into the book. As you tour the world, as you are fairly well elevated in the business arena, you meet spiritual people. Now, you're already armed, I'm understanding, with a a spiritual personality, a mindset. Uh, How are these individuals affecting you at the same time as being in a business world, as being almost in the material world? How does that work together i've always straddled that line between the material and the spiritual world for quite some years now which i think is really reflected in the book the book really does the same thing the book is kind of the perfect blend between a very worldly um thriller uh page turning thriller with a lot of interesting experiences and a profound spiritual content and that was essentially my life i um as i as i lived in some of these different countries people would just kind of appear unsolicited and they would seem to know me. I mean, I'm talking about what they call bush doctors in Africa or um, when I'd be walking the streets of Bangkok, uh, Thailand, I would have an Indian, uh, I don't know what you would call them, a wise person uh, in a turban approach me and say things like, oh, you're the boy who knows things. And I'd say, okay, what's this all about? And I'd strike up a conversation with him. And uh, I did meet uh, a number of figures like that as I traveled around, and they always seemed to kind of, you know, just pop into my life. I didn't go seeking them. They, They were there. And I think that that was really more of a validation that I said, okay, well, somebody knows I'm on a path here. The energy, the higher energy, the higher force that I've been speaking of knows that I'm on a path here, and they seem to be providing growth opportunities. So actually what you're saying is that they, they didn't necessarily teach you anything as a, as a prophet or a guru or in that fashion, but they were certainly alerting to you to where your journey was taking you. I would say there's a little bit of both, David. I did learn some things. I would probably say it was more weighted on the side of validating things that I was already sensing and I was already on the road to discovering. Uh, but certainly I did learn some other things uh, from them, uh, especially when I was in... I had a real problem when I was in Africa because my, my psyche was rather out of control. I was getting to the point where I would no conversations that were going to occur 10 minutes in advance. I'd, I'd lose a, a one paper in a stack of 100 papers, and I'd, I'd, real, I'd see the exact page that was lost, and I'd go back onto the airplane and find it under a seat. But it was getting to the point where I was getting bombarded with these impressions from the other side, and it was uh, very difficult for me to deal with. I, at the time, I, <laughs> I'd lost a lot of weight. I, weighed, I was um, about six foot one. I weighed about 145 pounds, and I was existing on a diet of coconut, pineapple, and papayas in, in, uh, in Nigeria. And I was really having a lot of trouble controlling this. I did meet an elderly gentleman there who actually eventually became a partner in a company that we were working with who uh, was a member of the Rosicrucians, and he tipped me off about the British Spiritualist Association uh, in the U.K., and suggested that I kind of go there to get some help, and I did, and they they worked with me to sort of help ground me a little bit. Uh, one of the reasons I think I pulled away from that form of 
psychic experience was not that I ever felt it was bad. Uh, it's just that I decided that rather than going so far into that realm, I wanted to now take what I had learned and I wanted to sort of transmit it to people on a more mass basis. So I stopped doing individual medical readings. I, I stopped all the individual work I was doing with people, which incidentally I never did for money. I, I just did it because. And, uh, you know, I start, I came up with the idea to, um, uh, Write, write this book and transmit what, what knowledge and, and wisdom that I had learned on, on a more uh, broad scale. So in other words, a lot of the premise or the story structure that comes from this book is actually led by those experiences when you were traveling abroad on business? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a, a, great, a great deal of it was. Now, the way the book, the actual seeds of this book actually came together was uh, I was in a screenwriting class in New England and the teacher came in or the instructor came in and said, I want everybody to do a high concept idea. And the definition of that was something that no one has ever done before. Now, that's, that's a pretty tall order because almost everything we do in life is a permutation of something else. But the way my mind was thinking, because I had such a, uh, a propensity to, to think in these spiritual directions, I said, okay, well, what haven't we seen before? Well, we've never seen a, uh, a woman as a priest or a woman as a pope before. And then because, uh, well, for several reasons, I decided to make her uh, an African nun from Nigeria, and that was how the seeds of the book were born. Now, the, the, uh, the formative writing of the book, I, I, did, I had about 25 years of my own personal research involved in this, and this was not something that I, I knew 25 years ago I was going to write a book about. It was just my interest. That was the way my mind thought. These were the things I wanted to learn about. But all of a sudden, the ability to use all, all those decades of, of, of book learning and, and also uh, of combined with practical spiritual practice presented the opportunity to get itself out in these, this book. And all of a sudden, I started getting all this information coming through, uh, this channeled information coming through. And the heart and soul of the book was written when I probably took off a year to take care of my wife who uh, had uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer. And during that year, it was a very emotional time. And I would say the heart and soul of the book sort of came through in, in, in those years. Before we launch into the book, uh, now I think our listeners have a very good visibility of what your life was about prior to really establishing yourself with the premise of this book. You just used the word impressions in terms of spirituality. Now, can you explain to me the difference between normal day intuition versus that word that is interesting me, impressions? What is the difference between the two in practical terms? Well, I would say intuition is a faculty, and it's one of our innate faculties that we have. I would say the opposite of the intuition is logic. Uh, in, in the Gnostic text, they would be described as the male and the female energies, the male being the, uh, the, the use of the mind and logic and linear thinking and, and verbalizing ideas through language. The female side of the equation would be intuition, feeling, uh, and expressing the, the, expressing the knowledge through impressions that you get derived from the intuition. And I say impressions because 
Sometimes things come through as clear bell-ringing messages. A lot of times they're very fleeting instances of things that you feel, and if you're not very careful to catch those in the instance in which they arise, you, you can dismiss them very quickly or forget them very quickly, and so, so you let some valuable information slip by. So you are actually appointing both of those words to spirituality. There's no border defining a difference between those. They can both be allocated in that fashion to where you're going in life. I, I believe that they fall on that. They can both fall on that side of the fence. I don't think that they're exactly the same if we want to get into very technical definitions, but I think they're very closely bound together. I think one, one arises from the other. Your impressions arise from your innate intuition. Let's look at Pope Annalisa. This is an amazing book, and I actually read it through twice. And, of course, as with any program like this, we don't want to give, it a, give away all of it, Peter, because otherwise people aren't going to go out and buy your book. But I'm sure that we can talk about the main areas and what your objectives are. First of all, what I'm so interested in in this book is having been well-read and well-trained in story structure, especially in film, I tend to work on the basis of beginning with disturbance, going through the effort of the book, and coming to a resolution, uh, something that people can take away with them. Now, what's interesting me is that you are stating here that the resolution is in the mind's of the reader to a great extent they can take away what they want to take away depending upon who they are their background their beliefs etc so really as we look into the story of this book would you agree that it is open-ended and in that are you doing that purposely as it is going to become a trilogy I think it is open-ended not necessarily because it's part of a trilogy but because there is a lot of profound spiritual material in this book. And a lot of times when people come in contact with that kind of information, they tend to be a little bit overwhelmed by it, and they tend to maybe take it as gospel, and they adopt it as yet another ism. Uh, I, I didn't want to start a new religion with this book. I, I'm not really um, encouraging anybody to subscribe wholesale to the things that they learn in the book. Because I think that part of the distinction between spirituality and religion, at least the way I see it, they're both way stations along a, a journey, a pathway that we're taking. The difference is that at the religious way station, we're encouraged to stay there and sit inside the station itself and then subscribe to everything that is being told to us at, at, you know, within the confines of that station, which would be the, the dogmas, the various things that you uh, essentially have to follow to be in membership with that particular religious domination, denomination, whether it's Catholicism, uh, evangelical fundamentalism, uh, or any, any other type of ism, they, it sort of tends to stunt your spiritual growth, because you're sort of stopped right there and told that is the truth. The truth is contained within these isms. Now, the way I look at it is that we need to continue along that same road, and that when you see what's presented in Pope Annalisa, it's presented in an open-ended way because it's designed to give people a clue into some other concepts that are outside the box of what we've been taught in the Judeo-Christian tradition, or at least in the Abrahamic religions, and to look at conceptions of reality, human being, the deity, higher intelligence, from a different angle, from a different perspective. That is not to say, now subscribe to this instead of that, but it's to say, now that you've gotten several sides of the equation, continue on your journey, but never mistake 
the signpost, which this book is a signpost for your destination. Let me start off the conversation precisely on the book. And as I say, we don't want to give it all away. But at the beginning of the book, it states in the third decade of the 2000th year from the Lord's crucifixion, a heretic shall rise, the great deceiver who shall perform miracles. This one shall deceive even the elect, overthrow the foundation of the church and ruin the ordering of the nations. Now, can you tell us a bit about Pope Annalisa and how she fits into that general definition? Right. Pope Annalisa is really, I would say it's sort of two stories, or maybe I would say that it's um, two two ways of approaching things blended into one story, and that is that uh, it's a thriller. Uh, it's set in the near future about America working African nun. It's a world where resources are scarce, oil and water are scarce. Uh, uh, it has a lot of current uh, events involved. Iran has gone nuclear, and incidentally, this this. Um, this was all done way before we knew about Iran's nuclear ambitions. In fact, the book had to be rewritten several times because it predicted both Gulf Wars. And finally, when we got up to the Iranian situation, I said, I am not going to rewrite this. It's going to press just as it is. So, uh, but uh, Annalisa rises against this rather grim background, rather unexpectedly performing healings in Africa. And she comes under suspicion of both the church and, and the Muslim uh, extremists in, in that country. Now, for, the, for those of you who don't know much about Nigeria, Nigeria, one of the reasons I chose Nigeria is that it is the most populous country in Africa. It's almost evenly divided between Christianity and Islam. It has for many years been a flashpoint or a front line between the tensions of those two respective world uh, outlooks or religious viewpoints. And uh, much of the tension in the book uh, has this as a background, the, uh, the Islamic funda- fundamentalism versus the West. And Annalisa arises in this atmosphere, and she's performing healings that aren't sanctioned by the Church, and some Muslims are converting because of it, so they're mad, and it's upsetting the apple cart. Uh, part of the reason the Church is suspicious of her is because of what you just cited, prophecies that uh, have, uh, have been around for a while, which... Uh, warn against the advent of, a, of an antichrist sort of figure. And throughout much of the book, you don't really know uh, what Annalisa is really about, whether she is a force for good or evil. Uh, when, she, when she rises in the hierarchy of the Church, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Demonic symbols start appearing around the Vatican, and the, uh, uh, America and, and Iran uh, are, uh, are now squaring off in a, uh, very close to a nuclear confrontation. Uh, there, the other great nations are getting involved, and Annalisa is in the middle of this. And the question is: Is you know she the cause uh, of this, or is she the uh, is she is she going to be the savior of the situation? And, and I think if you really take a look at it, if you look back in the Bible when Jesus was about his ministry in Palestine, part of the population there thought he was a sorcerer. He was performing, yes, he was performing magic and he did these miracles, but uh, they weren't really they weren't really for the good. They were uh, there was there was somebody who was out there claiming that he was the son of God and performing these tricks which was contrary to the, you know, Jewish religion and turning their eyes away from the the religion of the uh, of the high priesthood. And then there were others who uh, who felt that he was the savior, that that his, his his he was come to enlighten humanity. So I think around great figures, there has always been a divided point of view because they're complex, and and the things that they do and the effect they have on people are complex. It's not black and white, and some people are going to view that as a power for good, and some as a power for ill. Well, of course, we don't want to label 
this character. I realise that. Um, I'm not sure that you are labelling her even as a, a prophet. But the reason that I brought up Martin Luther earlier in the conversation is because I think there was a contextual connection there into the sort of effects that he had on the church and on the Vatican, on religion as being less dominated by the popes and the Vatican and, and more dominated by the scriptures. And I was wondering in reading this, Peter, whether you had any sort of similarities between those two figures. Would you say that Martin Luther, in a way, was creating similar results to Pope Annalisa, only four or five hundred years apart? Well, it's an interesting question. I would say that certainly some of the effects that both those characters had, Martin Luther and Pope Annalisa, they did, um, they did uh, produce some similar effects on the established religion or the Catholic Church uh, in this question, because obviously when anybody comes and they present a new perspective to something that people have tried to write in stone for 2,000 years, which is essentially what the Catholic Church is about, that that scripture was revealed and the lord had come and we're essentially going to freeze that scenario uh for you know for for all all eternity to come and the church is going to represent that story without change so that we can keep our purity and orthodoxy uh as opposed to people who are coming to let's say a different or perhaps more mature uh well-rounded spiritual vision when that spiritual vision is presented it's always going to uh, create some divisiveness between the, the old perspective and the new perspective. Uh, I would say from the standpoint of Annalisa, a very big difference is that Annalisa is, is representative of what I see as a rise of, uh, of a female energy, uh, a, a recovery of the, um, uh, the sacred goddess of what we call Magna Mater in the old days, the Earth Mother, so forth. At one time, and this is cyclical, at one time, the basis of most religions in the world was uh, feminine in orientation and, and very oriented towards tied into nature and the, and the earth. For the last couple thousand years, the scales have uh, tilted to the other side where it's been uh, uh, very patriarchically dominated cultures. And I think we're now uh, going through a period where we're coming into a balance where these factors that we talked about before, uh, the feminine qualities of, of intuition, uh, feeling, insight, and so forth, are now becoming more prevalent, and the old structure of, of analytic logic, that we're purely going to you know, look at the world through the eyes of material analytic logic, is breaking down. And you can see that, that more and more people are reaching out to spiritually seek. I think that's one of the reasons why Annalisa uh, is becoming popular now, is because it's sort of a uh, harbinger of this whole uh, movement, which I think is feminine orientation. And I think to that extent, that's a different dimension and a different paradigm than what Martin Luther was trying to achieve. But I guess the similarity would be in the fact that it was the, an old perspective was being supplanted by a new perspective. I ask the question, Peter, because if you look at the after-effects of Martin Luther, he essentially took a church and he divided it up into some uh, 20 different divisions, Protestant divisions of institutions. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that was his intention, that is exactly what occurred. And in context, in, in trying to understand your story process, what Annalisa did was affect wars. She created wars. 
She didn't create wars in the religious sphere, but it almost as if she purposely created wars in the political realm to mix things up, to affect, although different, in some ways parallel with what Martin Luther did. Well, I think whether Annalisa created wars or not is something that is an, an open-ended uh, question in, in the book. Again, uh, how much of, of um, what comes in the wake of Annalisa uh, was, uh, was actually uh, in, in intentional on her part uh, in terms of uh, you know, setting, a, setting fire to the earth. But uh, I, I do believe, again, that any time something new is being born, and certainly Annalisa was, Annalisa was introducing a new way. The new way, in, in, in fact, uh, it's a little ironic that the new way, in fact, was something that was actually a, an original tradition of the Church, which was branded as heresy and stamped out. So in some ways you could say she's introducing something new. In some other ways you can say she's bringing back the old. And I was going to say, are you establishing those very much in historical scriptures, historical yes. knowledge? Yes, the, the, the wisdom, the, the, the spiritual or wisdom tradition that uh, runs throughout the book is something that is, has a very definite historical basis. It, it, it is genuine. It is based on uh, historical documents uh, and spiritual teachings that were really, I, I'm going to say, universal. It, they covered almost every major culture and religion of ancient in ancient times, and uh, their vestiges are still seen in the Western religions. Uh, the Kabbalah was the was the mystic core of Judaism. Gnosticism was the mystic core of Christianity. Sufism was the mystic core of Islam. Now, the, they all had, they all possessed this common spiritual tradition among the three mystic cores, so that they were closer to each other than they were to their respective outer religions. And this, um, you know, we could get into what, what the, a little bit about what this mystic uh, mystic tradition is about, but uh, it's something that has a different perspective than what we have been uh, taught here in the West, and uh, you still find uh, strong evidence of this in other religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. But it was a universal threat. It was not a religion. It was a spiritual tradition and a spiritual knowledge that formed sort of the under underpinning of many of our, or most of our major religions, whether pagan or otherwise. And uh, it permeated them, and unfortunately, it was uh, destroyed or truncated in the West by, by the rise of Orthodox Christianity. Are you using the word mystical as meaning the same word ancient in terms of uh, history, in terms of religion and the scriptures? No, they're, they're not one of the same thing. A ancient simply refers to a, a time period, an, an epoch of our history, whereas mystical is something that transcends time periods. It's, it's, a, it's a character of experience. It's a type of experience. It's but it's nevertheless a subproduct from the ancient ways. This particular, this particular mystical tradition that I am speaking of, yes, it was clearly formulated uh, in, in, well, the mists of history, let's say, uh, and we, we, we still have uh, parts of it, outcroppings of it, whatever, uh, in, in modern times. And fortunately, as we make more discoveries, and maybe there'll be more scriptures uncovered, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or, or the Nag Hammadi finds, that uh, will shed more light on these ancient traditions, which were actually, they were subjective in experience, but they have 
a tremendous amount of intersection with findings uh, in modern science. Many of the modern advanced theories of quantum physics, molecular biology, and other things are basically saying the same thing in modern technical terms, that these ancient mystics were deriving subjectively from their experiences in higher unseen realms. Looking at the general course of the book, Peter, I know that it's based around a catalyst of a mad world, a materialistic world, a a world that is ruled by uh, governments, politics, power, and military. And what it's talking to is creating some sort of catalytic event by this woman. From your side, from the way that you built the story, is there any context again in that purpose compared to perhaps the flood, when we know that before the flood that the world was chaotic, broken. Is that the sort of world that we find here with this lady who realizes that the world is in such a mess that she has to create something so powerful that it it actually transforms people, nations, communities? I think so. I, I think that we go through periods of history where we reach critical junctures. Perhaps one of the last ones was during the last global war that we had. And I think that uh, humanity will always get itself into boxes like that because, essentially, we, we, we do think of the world in almost strictly material terms. Um, spiritual knowledge is really quite deficient in many areas. We, we rely on religious dogmas, and, of course, those, those are rather rather empty and hollow. They haven't really presented any solutions to problems. Uh, a lot of people think they're the causes of, of our problems, and I, I think they tend to be more of, a, of an excuse for conflicts rather than uh, co- actual causes of conflicts. But nonetheless, they've not presented any real uh, solutions to our dilemmas. And I think it's only by the only way the human beings are going to work themselves or ourselves out of this, this, this vicious cycle of conflicts is by evolving into a higher consciousness of what it means to be human, what it really and truly means to be human. And I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, sure. and, and do continue after this, but, but that in itself is not making the suggestion that we should not rule our lives by the Scriptures, rule our lives by whether we're a Christian, Catholic, or whatever, but it's suggesting that we should look more at ourselves in a bigger, universal way. Yes, because, again, one of the themes of this book, David, is that spirit transcends religion. Spirit is no respecter of religious judgments. The, the, the whole idea in religion that we have the truth and our truth stands opposed to the truth of this other religion uh, is, uh, is, a, is a very limiting perspective. I, I, I think that, that if you believe in a higher being, that that being would probably be sitting there laughing at that, that whole circumstance because... Uh, that 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 divine that divine mind that divine energy is so much more universal and should not be you know boxed into our our own uh, you know particular limiting uh, limiting beliefs. Uh, I think the one universal belief, and again this comes as part of the discovery or actual experience that we spoke about earlier, is in fact that there really is a unity and there really is a higher intelligence that binds us all at another level. Now most people will listen to that as an intellectual proposition until you've actually gone through the experiences of it like I have, like other people have, like I I would hope uh, in reading this book other people may launch themselves along the road to having those experiences. But once you have had that experience, you, 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 you realize that 
all this stuff is not baloney. It's not, it's not a bunch of uh, New Age garbage. There really is information out there, and it really is telling us something, and it speaks to our unity rather than to our separateness. And I think that one of the things that is part of the belief uh, system of this ancient spiritual wisdom is that we all were, come from one energy, and that one energy devolved. It basically scattered itself into, well, the I am became the we are. The infinite projected itself into finite experience, and that the human being is the end product of that projection of divine energy into the appearance of individuality and separateness. And yet, the real state of our being is oneness, so that sort of the, the goal, the, the teleological goal of the human condition really is to evolve our way back to the oneness from which we came. And part of that oneness is a waking up or a remembrance to what we really are. It's not so much learning what we are, it's really remembering what we already are and evolving back towards that. And that's that experience of unity or wholeness that I was speaking of earlier. Now, is that supporting in biblical terms that we are indeed fallen, that we are fallen because of Adam and Eve, or what is your perspective on that period and the effects upon us today, you know, many thousands of years later? Yeah, great question, great question. And I think that it really stands very much in distinction to the whole Genesis story and the Adam and Eve story, because the ancient wisdom would tell us that that human beings are physical entities containing projection of God's own spiritual en- uh, essence. And, and this means that humans, uh, as we said, are, are expressions of the infinite and finite form here on Earth for the purpose of evolving God's consciousness into matter. Now, what does the traditional Judeo-Christian story tell us? Well, rather than being a divine projection, human beings are sort of viewed as, well, you know, it's this lump of clay that was, uh, you know, and, and life was breathed into it, and uh, it was sort of created out of nothing. It was created separately uh, as a distinct being from the deity out of nothing, and then it went ahead and sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now we basically have to spend the rest of our life trying to appease God for our sins and working our way back. That, that's, a, that's an awfully lowly state uh, to, 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 to put humanity in, and it's the source I think of much guilt, and I think it really takes away from what I think is is a much more compassionate and much more compelling explanation of what human beings are, because if, in fact, we are not these little lumps of clay that were wound up like dolls bouncing off in, you know, each other in an earthly insane asylum, and we are projections of the divine essence working our way through material experience in order to bring that experience uh, of materiality back to you know, the, the, the spiritual source, then that's a really exalted state for humanity. Essentially, humanity can be pictured as the fingers of God touching this material world for experience and, and for the, 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 the feeling of individuality as opposed to you know, the infinite, of course, could, I suppose in some ways it could be rather boring if, if you are everything and know everything. How do you, you, know, how do you have uh, individual experience? How do you even reflect upon yourself? Well, you know, by going into the, the uh, let's call it the illusion of individuality, which we are here, experiencing, uh, you know, the matter in finite forms, 
is is um, the way the ancients would have explained that. So we come into this world sort of amnesiac and forgetting what our real uh, divine heritage was, but that's what we're working our way towards. That's our purpose in life. That's the alienation we feel and the longing we feel deep within us is to get back to that spiritual home. And I think that I am pleased that I asked that question because I think for the listener that may have given them an insight into the challenges that they will themselves go through uh, reading this book, uh, but also the uh, the outcome and the success with which you provide them that information. As we close towards the end of the program, I am interested, obviously, that a lot of this book is based around the Vatican mansion. I wanted to get some clarity on whether there is any specific significance in that, whether you are in any way opposing the Catholic faith, because it's, it appears to me that much of the historical evidence background in this book is on the Christian faith. What is your stance there? What would you uh, tell your audience in response to that question? Well, a couple things. First of all, this is not a Catholic book. The Catholic Church is a vehicle for telling a universal story that's applicable to everybody, uh, whether regardless of race, religion, creed, what, what not. Uh, and the perspectives in the book are uh, based on, uh, certainly probably based on a Judeo-Christian story or a different version of a Judeo-Christian story. But remember, what it, what it really is showing is how our Western religions were once much more connected with the other religions of the world in terms of a common mystical spiritual knowledge. And, and I'm not just talking about Hinduism and Buddhism, other, other uh, extant religions. I'm talking about pagan religions of the past. Uh, the mystery schools in Egypt, the Oracle of Delphi, the Eleusinian mysteries, this, this spiritual wisdom we talked about really was the thread that sewed all these religions together. And like I say, unfortunately, it was uh, near destroyed in the West, much to our, our detriment and, and lack of spiritual knowledge. Well, of but, course, that, as you said earlier in the program, is a cyclical process, is it not? If you look at the Reformation period, if you look at these periods of hundreds of years all the way from 100 AD, it does undulate. It does go in different opposing directions, very much as politics does today. We step forward into light, and then we sink back into shadow, and we step forward into light again. And certainly, one of the beliefs of the ancient world was that when we do fall back into the darkness, that the, the higher intelligence or God sends redeemers uh, to to uh, bring bring the light back and set us back in our spiritual path. In fact, in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, the great Indian spiritual epic, Krishna, the, the deity of the Hindus, says to Arjuna that when uh, when uh, when light is on the wane, uh, I incarnate from age to age to bring virtue back on its throne and essentially set the record straight again. And this was called dispensationalism, but this is, uh, was a well-known belief in the ancient world and, and even in the modern world today among more, more um, spiritually, um, uh, spiritually involved people. But to, to get back to your original question, David, this is not a church-bashing book. Uh, Annalisa do, does what she does within the church. She very explicitly states what I do must be done within the church. She doesn't seek to form uh, a new religion. She seeks to bring back what, uh, I, I, well, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but um, I guess you would say from the perspective of her awareness of what she is doing, uh, she seeks to restore what was uh, a, 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 a truer form of Christianity uh, before it was, it was suppressed and it was very feminine in, in character. So 
the Gnostics, who were the victims of Orthodox Christianity, there were two main streams of Christianity in, in ancient times, the Gnostic and the Orthodox. The Gnostics were the mystics, the Orthodox were more, well, essentially the, the structure of the Church that we have today. The Gnostics lost out, were pretty much eradicated, but the Gnostics always said about the what they called the outer of the public Church, is that that is spirituality 101. That brings the people in, it gives them basic precepts of spirit, but then the point is not to get stuck there, which is what the Church would want you to do, is stay there, sort of a little bit under their control. The Gnostics would say, use that as a stepping stone to graduate and go on in your spiritual journey. And the Gnostics would, would say that we will impart to you practices and knowledge that will help you on that journey, but we're not going to present you with a set dogma that is going to cause you to get boxed in and stop your spiritual journey just a little further up the road. The point is not to keep stopping and get boxed in, but to continue that journey until essentially you're absorbed in the heart of God, and at that point you'll know you're there. Well, Peter, in the last two minutes of the program, I would like, and I'm, I am pleased that we haven't given away the book, um, but I would like to just refer to your epilogue and just have your very short comment on this as we close out. In this, uh, my favorite, William Wordsworth, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trading clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. And I think my last question would be for you. There are descriptions in the final pages here of her passing. And when asked a question, Pope Annalisa responds by saying, these are the days of endless possibilities. How would you finish up your resolution of this book and what that is suggesting to the listener who will no doubt want to read this this piece? Well, I, I, first of all, I think the, the passage from Wordsworth is such a... a beautiful uh, and penetrating statement of what the spiritual wisdom is about that we've been speaking of today. I couldn't think of a, more, of a better way to put it. It's absolutely brilliant, which is why I used it in the book. And I think that the days of endless possibilities refers to an optimism about where humanity is headed, and that at times when we appear to be completely in the slough of despond and, 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 and the darkness of the shadow, which is a constant companion in our life. We're, we're creatures of light and shadow. And that when the shadow appears to be prevalent, that we have to remember that the basic tone of the universe and the basic tone of spirit is good. And it is about growth. It is about love. And this is what the Christ and many other teachers have taught. It's probably the most beautiful thought we have, which is that God is love. So that we all, I believe, will one day uh, become enlightened to the source from where we come. And when Annalisa says that these are the days of endless possibility, it's her proclamation of optimism for the outcome and the end goal of the human species is to regain that exalted state of being from which we came. Peter Canova, I congratulate you so much on the awards that you've already received for this book. I did enjoy the book, and I will be, for one, following you with great anticipation. I hope that our listeners will as well. I wish you so much luck. I know that we're going to be staying in touch here, and thank you so much for your time in appearing on In Discussion. 
Well, I greatly enjoyed this discussion. Thank you for the terrific questions. I, I might mention in closing uh, that the publication date of the book is June 1st. Uh, it's already on the databases of most of the bookstores. If you go into your uh, bookstore and inquire about Pope Annalisa, they should have it in the computer and should be able to uh, order it. And obviously hope that uh, it has some success in the sales world out there because then I can get on to book number two of the trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Canova, thank you very much today. Thank you very much, David. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. The book is a wonderful uh, piece of work. Uh, Pope Annalisa, available from June the 1st by the author Peter Canova. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Peter will have a blog at davidgibbons.org as well, where you can provide feedback or comments or questions. I'm sure that he will be signing up on the RSS on that to support any questions that you may have in the future. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management